BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 23 of This Seawolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Seawolf by Jack London. Chapter 23 Brave winds blowing fair swiftly drove the ghost northward into the seal herd. We encountered it well up to the 44th parallel in a raw and stormy sea across which the wind harried the fog banks in eternal light. For days at a time we could never see the sun nor take an observation. Then the wind would sweep the face of the ocean clean, the waves would ripple and flash, and we would learn where we were. A day of clear weather might follow, or three days, or four, and then the fog would settle down upon us, seemingly thicker than ever. The hunting was perilous, yet the boats, lowered day after day, were swallowed up in the gray obscurity, and were seen no more till nightfall and often not till long after when they would creep in like sea wraiths one by one out of the gray wainwright the hunter whom wolf larsen had stolen with boat and men took advantage of the veiled sea and escaped he disappeared one morning in the encircling fog with his two men and we never saw them again though it was not many days when we learned that they had passed from schooner to schooner until they finally regained their own this was the thing i had set my mind upon doing but the opportunity never offered it was not in the mate's province to go out in the boats and though i maneuvered cunningly for it wolf larsen never granted me the privilege had he done so i should have managed somehow to carry miss brewster away with me as it was the situation was approaching a stage which i was afraid to consider i involuntarily shunned the thought of it and yet the thought continually arose in my mind like a haunting spectre i had read sea romances in my time wherein figured as a matter of course the lone woman in the midst of a shipload of men but i learned now that i had never comprehended the deeper significance of such a situation the thing the writers harped upon and exploited so thoroughly and here it was now and i was face to face with it that it should be as vital as possible it required no more than that the woman should be maud brewster who now charmed me in person as she had long charmed me through her work no one more out of environment could be imagined she was a delicate ethereal creature swaying and willowy light and graceful of movement it never seemed to me that she walked or at least walked after the ordinary manner of mortals Hers was an extreme lithesomeness, 
and she moved with a certain indefinable airness approaching one as down might float or as a bird on noiseless wings she was like a bit of dresden china and i was continually impressed with what i may call her fragility as at the time i caught her arm when helping her below so at any time i was quite prepared should stress or rough handling befall her to see her crumble away i have never seen body and spirit in such perfect accord describe her verse as the critics have described it as sublimated and spiritual and you will have described her body it seemed to partake of her soul to have analogous attributes and to link it to life with the slenderest of chains indeed she trod the earth lightly and in her constitution there was little of the robust clay she was in striking contrast to wolf larsen each was nothing that the other was everything that the other was not i noted them walking the deck together one morning and i likened them to the extreme ends of the human ladder of evolution the one the culmination of all savagery the other the finished product of the finest civilization true wolf larsen possessed intellect to an unusual degree but it was directed solely to the exercise of his savage instincts and made him but the more formidable a savage he was splendidly muscled a heavy man and though he strode with the certitude and directness of the physical man there was nothing heavy about his stride the jungle and the wilderness lurked in the uplift and downput of his feet he was cat-footed and lithe and strong always strong i likened him to some great tiger a beast of prowess and prey he looked it and the piercing glitter that arose at times in his eyes was the same piercing glitter i had observed in the eyes of caged leopards and other preying animals of the wild but this day as i noted them pacing up and down i saw that it was she who terminated the walk they came up to where i was standing by the entrance to the companionway though she betrayed it by no outward sign i felt somehow that she was greatly perturbed she made some idle remark looking at me and laughed lightly enough but i saw her eyes return to his involuntarily as though fascinated then they fell but not swiftly enough to veil the rush of terror that filled them it was in his eyes that i saw the cause of her perturbation ordinarily gray and cold and harsh they were now warm and soft and golden and all a dance with tiny lights that dimmed and faded or welled up till the full orbs were flooded with a glowing radiance perhaps it was to this that the golden color was due but golden his eyes were enticing and masterful at the same time luring and compelling and speaking a demand and clamor of the blood which no woman much less maud brewster could misunderstand her own terror rushed upon me and in that moment of fear the most terrible fear a man can experience i knew that in inexpressible ways she was dear to me the knowledge that i loved her rushed upon me with the terror and with both emotions gripping at my heart and causing my blood at the same time to chill and to leap riotously 
I felt myself drawn by a power without me and beyond me, and found my eyes returning against my will to gaze into the eyes of Wolf Larsen. But he had recovered himself. The golden color and the dancing lights were gone. Cold and gray and glittering they were, as he bowed brusquely and turned away. I am afraid, she whispered with a shiver. I am so afraid. I too was afraid, and what of my discovery of how much she meant to me my mind was in a turmoil, but I succeeded in answering quite calmly. All will come right, Miss Brewster. Trust me, it will come right. She answered with a grateful little smile that sent my heart pounding and started to descend the companion stairs. For a long while I remained standing where she had left me. There was imperative need to adjust myself, to consider the significance of the changed aspect of things. It had come, at last. Love had come, when I least expected it, and under the most forbidding conditions. Of course, my philosophy had always recognized the inevitableness of the love call, sooner or later, but long years of bookish silence had made me inattentive and unprepared. And now it had come. Maud Brewster. My memory flashed back to that first thin little volume on my desk, and I saw before me, as though in the concrete, the row of thin little volumes on my library shelf. How I had welcomed each of them. Each year one had come from the press, and to me each was the advent of the year. They had voiced a kindred intellect and spirit and as such I had received them into a camaraderie of the mind. But now their place was in my heart. My heart? A revulsion of feeling came over me. I seemed to stand outside myself and look at myself incredulously. Maud Brewster, Humphrey Van Waden, the cold-blooded fish, the emotionless monster, the analytical demon of Charlie Furiseth's christening, in love. And then, without rhyme or reason, all skeptical, my mind flew back to a small biographical note in the red-bound Who's Who, and I said to myself, she was born in Cambridge, and she is twenty-seven years old. And then I said, twenty-seven years old, and still free and fancy-free? But how did I know she was fancy-free? And the pang of newborn jealousy put all incredulity to flight. There was no doubt about it. I was jealous. Therefore, I loved. And the woman I loved was Maud Brewster. I, Humphrey Van Waden, was in love. And again the doubt assailed me. Not that I was afraid of it, however, or reluctant to meet it. On the contrary. Idealist that I was to the most pronounced degree, my philosophy had always recognized and girded love as the greatest thing in the world, the aim and the summit of being, the most exquisite pitch of joy and happiness to which life could thrill, the thing of all things to be hailed and welcomed and taken into the heart. But now that it had come, I could not believe. I could not be so fortunate. It was too good too good to be true. Simon's lines came into my head. I wandered all these years among a world of women seeking you. 
and then i had ceased seeking it was not for me this greatest thing in the world i had decided furaseth was right i was abnormal an emotionless monster a strange bookish creature capable of pleasuring in sensations only of the mind and though i had been surrounded by women all my days my appreciation of them had been aesthetic and nothing more i had actually at times considered myself outside the pale a monkish fellow denied the eternal or the passing passions i saw and understood so well in others and now it had come undreamed of and unheralded it had come in what could have been no less than an ecstasy i left my post at the head of the companionway and started along the deck murmuring to myself those beautiful lines of mrs browning i lived with visions for my company instead of men and women years ago and found them gentle mates nor thought to know a sweeter music than they played to me but the sweeter music was playing in my ears and i was blind and oblivious to all about me the sharp voice of wolf larsen aroused me what the hell are you up to he was demanding i had strayed forward where the sailors were painting and i came to myself to find my advancing foot on the verge of overturning a paint pot sleepwalking sunstroke what he barked no indigestion i retorted and continued my walk as if nothing untoward had occurred end of chapter twenty three chapter twenty four of the sea wolf this librivox recording is in the public domain the sea wolf by jack london chapter twenty four among the most vivid memories of my life are those of the events on the ghost which occurred during the forty hours succeeding the discovery of my love for maud brewster i who had lived my life in quiet places only to enter at an age of thirty-five upon a course of the most irrational adventure i could have imagined never had more incident and excitement crammed into any forty hours of my experience nor can i quite close my ears to a small voice of pride which tells me i did not do so badly all things considered to begin with at midday dinner wolf larsen informed the hunters that they were to eat thenceforth in the steerage it was an unprecedented thing on sealing schooners where it is the custom for the hunters to rank unofficially as officers he gave no reason but his motive was obvious enough horner and smoke had been displaying a gallantry toward maud brewster ludicrous in itself and inoffensive to her but to him evidently distasteful the announcement was received with black silence though the other four hunters glanced significantly at the two who had been the cause of the banishment jack horner quiet as was his way gave no sign but the blood surged darkly across smoke's forehead and he half opened his mouth to speak wolf larsen was watching him waiting for him the steely glitter in his eyes but smoke closed his mouth again without having said anything anything to say the other demanded aggressively it was a challenge but smoke refused to accept it about what he asked 
so innocently that Wolf Larsen was disconcerted, while the others smiled. "'Oh, nothing,' Wolf Larsen said lamely. "'I just thought you might want to register a kick.' "'About what?' asked the imperturbable Smoke. Smoke's mates were now smiling broadly. His captain could have killed him, and I doubt not that blood would have flowed had not Maud Brewster been present. For that matter, it was her presence which enabled Smoke to act as he did. He was too discreet and cautious a man to incur Wolf Larsen's anger at a time when that anger could be expressed in terms stronger than words. I was in fear that a struggle might take place, but a cry from the helmsman made it easy for the situation to save itself. Smoke ho! The cry came down the open companionway. How's it bear? Wolf Larsen called up. Dead astern, sir. Maybe it's Russian, suggested Latimer. His words brought anxiety into the faces of the other hunters. A Russian could mean but one thing a cruiser. The hunters, never more than roughly aware of the position of the ship, nevertheless knew that they were close to the boundaries of the Forbidden Sea, while Wolf Larsen's record as a poacher was notorious. All eyes centered upon him. "'We're dead safe,' <laughs> he assured them with a laugh. "'No salt mines this time, Smoke. But I'll tell you what. I'll lay odds of five to one it's the Macedonia.' No one accepted his offer, and he went on. In which event, I'll lay ten to one, there's trouble breezing up. No, thank you, Latimer spoke up. I don't object to losing my money, but I like to get a run for it anyway. There never was a time when there wasn't trouble when you and that brother of yours got together, and I'll lay twenty to one on that. A general smile followed, in which Wolf Larsen joined, and the dinner went on smoothly, thanks to me, for he treated me abominably the rest of the meal, sneering at me and patronizing me till I was all a-tremble with suppressed rage. Yet I knew I must control myself for Maud Brewster's sake, and I received my reward when her eyes caught mine for a fleeting second, and they said, as distinctly as if she spoke, be brave, be brave. We left the table to go on deck, for a steamer was a welcome break in the monotony of the sea on which we floated, while the conviction that it was Death Larsen and the Macedonia added to the excitement. The stiff breeze and heavy sea which had sprung up the previous afternoon had been moderating all morning, so that it was now possible to lower the boats for an afternoon's hunt. The hunting promised to be profitable. We had sailed since daylight across a sea barren of seals, and were now running into the herd. The smoke was still miles astern, but overhauling us rapidly when we lowered our boats. They spread out and struck a northerly course across the ocean. Now and again we saw a sail lower, heard the reports of the shotguns, and saw the sail go up again. The seals were thick, the wind was dying away, everything favored a big catch. As we ran off to get our leeward position of the last lee boat, we found the ocean fairly carpeted with sleeping seals. They were all about us, thicker than I had ever seen them before, in twos and threes and bunches, stretched full length on the surface, 
and sleeping for all the world like so many lazy young dogs. Under the approaching smoke, the hull and upper works of a steamer were growing larger. It was the Macedonia. I read her name through the glasses as she passed by, scarcely a mile to starboard. Wolf Larsen looked savagely at the vessel, while Maud Brewster was curious. "'Where is the trouble you were so sure was breezing up, Captain Larsen?' she asked gaily. He glanced at her, a moment's amusement softening his features. "'What did you expect, that they'd come aboard and cut our throats?' "'Something like that,' she confessed. "'You understand, seal hunters are so new and strange to me that I am quite ready to expect anything.' He nodded his head. "'Quite right, quite right. Your error is that you failed to expect the worst.' "'Why, what can be worse than cutting our throats?' she asked with pretty naive surprise. "'Cutting our purses,' he answered. "'Man is so made these days that his capacity for living is determined by the money he possesses.' "'Who steals my purse steals trash,' she quoted. "'Who steals my purse steals my right to live,' was the reply. "'Old saws to the contrary.' for he steals my bread and meat and bed, and in so doing imperils my life. There are not enough soup kitchens and bread lines to go around, you know, and when men have nothing in their purses they usually die and die miserably, unless they are able to fill their purses pretty speedily. But I fail to see that this steamer has any designs on your purse. Wait and you will see, he answered grimly. We did not have long to wait. Having passed several miles beyond our line of boats, the Macedonia proceeded to lower her own. We knew she carried fourteen boats to our five. We were one short through the desertion of Wainwright, and she began dropping them far to leeward of our last boat, continued dropping them athwart our course, and finished dropping them far to windward of our first weather boat. The hunting for us was spoiled. There were no seals behind us, and ahead of us the line of fourteen boats, like a huge broom, swept the herd before it. Our boats hunted across the two or three miles of water between them and the point where the Macedonias had been dropped, and then headed for home. The wind had fallen to a whisper, the ocean was growing calmer and calmer, and this, coupled with the presence of the great herd, made a perfect hunting day, one of the two or three days to be encountered in the whole of a lucky season. An angry lot of men, boat-pullers and steerers, as well as hunters, swarmed over our side. Each man felt he had been robbed, and the boats were hoisted in amid curses, which, if curses had power, would have settled death larsen for all eternity. "'Dead and damned for a dozen of eternities,' commented Lewis, his eyes twinkling up at me as he rested from hauling taut the lashings of his boat. "'Listen to them, and find if it is hard to discover the most vital thing in their souls,' said Wolf Larsen. "'Faith and love and high ideals, the good, the beautiful, the true?' "'Their innate sense of right has been violated.' Maud Brewster said, joining the conversation. She was standing a dozen feet away, 
one hand resting on the main shrouds and her body swaying gently to the slight roll of the ship she had not raised her voice and yet i was struck by its clear and bell-like tone ah it was sweet in my ears i scarcely dared look at her just then for the fear of betraying myself a boy's cap was perched on her head and her hair light brown and arranged in a loose and fluffy order that caught the sun seemed an aureole about the delicate oval of her face she was positively bewitching sweetly spiritual if not saintly all my old-time marvel at life returned to me at sight of this splendid incarnation of it and wolf larsen's cold explanation of life and its meaning was truly ridiculous and laughable a sentimentalist he sneered like mr van waden those men are cursing because their desires have been outraged that is all what desires the desires for the good grub and soft beds ashore which a handsome payday brings them the women and a drink the gorging and the beastliness which so truly expresses them the best that is in them their highest aspirations their ideals if you please the exhibition they make of their feelings is not a touching sight yet it shows how deeply they have been touched how deeply their purses have been touched for to lay hands on their purses is to lay hands on their souls you hardly behave as if your purse has been touched she said smilingly then it so happens that i am behaving differently for my purse and my soul have both been touched at the current price of skins in the london market and based on a fair estimate of what the afternoon's catch would have been had not the macedonia hogged it the ghost had lost about fifteen hundred dollars worth of skins you speak so calmly she began but i do not feel calm i could kill the man who robbed me he interrupted yes yes i know and that man my brother more sentiment bah his face underwent a sudden change his voice was less harsh and wholly sincere as he said you must be happy you sentimentalists really and truly happy at dreaming and finding things good and because you find some of them good feeling good yourself now tell me you two do you find me good you are good to look upon in a way i qualified there are in you all powers for good was maud brewster's answer there you are he cried at her half angrily your words are empty to me there is nothing clear and sharp and definite about the thought you have expressed you cannot pick it up in your two hands and look at it in point of fact it is not a thought it is a feeling a sentiment a something based upon illusion and not a product of the intellect at all as he went on his voice again grew soft and a confiding note came into it Do you know i sometimes catch myself wishing that i too were blind to the facts of life and only knew its fancies and illusions they're wrong all wrong of course and contrary to reason but in the face of them my reason tells me wrong and must wrong that to dream and live illusions gives greater delight and after all delight is the wage for living without delight living is a worthless act 
To labor at living and be unpaid is worse than to be dead. He who delights the most lives the most, and your dreams and unrealities are less disturbing to you and more gratifying than are my facts to me. He shook his head slowly, pondering. I often doubt, I often doubt the worthwhileness of reason. Dreams must be more substantial and satisfying. Emotional delight is more filling and lasting than intellectual delight. And besides, you pay for your moments of intellectual delight by having the blues. Emotional delight is followed by no more than jaded senses which speedily recuperate. I envy you. I envy you. He stopped abruptly, and then on his lips formed one of his strange quizzical smiles, as he added, It's from my brain I envy you take notice, and not from my heart. My reason dictates it. The envy is an intellectual product. I am like a sober man looking upon drunken men, and greatly weary, wishing he too were drunk. Or like a wise man looking upon fools and wishing he too were a fool. I laughed. Quite so, he said. You are a blessed, bankrupt pair of souls. You have no facts in your pocketbook. Yet we spend as freely as you, was Maud Brewster's contribution. More freely, because it costs you nothing. And because we draw upon eternity, she retorted. Whether you do or think you do, it's the same thing. You spend what you haven't got, and in return, you get greater value from spending what you haven't got than I get from spending what I have got and what I have sweated to get. Why don't you change the basis of your coinage, then? She queried teasingly. He looked at her quickly, half hopefully, and then said, all regretfully, Too late. I'd like to, perhaps, but I can't. My pocketbook is stuffed with the old coinage, and it's a stubborn thing. I can never bring myself to recognize anything else as valid. He ceased speaking, and his gaze wandered absently past her and became lost in the placid sea. The old primal melancholy was strong upon him. He was quivering to it. He had reasoned himself into a spell of the blues, and within few hours one could look for the devil within him to be up and stirring. I remembered Charlie Furiseth, and knew this man's sadness as the penalty which the materialist ever pays for his materialism. End of chapter 24「You've been on deck, Mr. Van Waden,' Wolf Larsen said the following morning at the breakfast table. "'How do things look?' "'Clear enough,' I answered, glancing at the sunshine which streamed down the open companionway. "'Fair westerly breeze with a promise of stiffening.' if Lewis predicts correctly. He nodded his head in a pleased way. Any signs of fog? Thick banks in the north and northwest. He nodded his head again, evincing even greater satisfaction than before. What of the Macedonia? Not sighted, I answered. I could have sworn his face fell at the intelligence. 
but why he should be disappointed i could not conceive i was soon to learn smoke ho came the hail from on deck and his face brightened good he exclaimed and left the table at once to go on deck and into the steerage where the hunters were taking their first breakfast of their exile maud brewster and i scarcely touched the food before us gazing instead in silent anxiety at each other and listening to wolf larsen's voice which easily penetrated the cabin through the intervening bulkhead he spoke at length and his conclusion was greeted with a wild roar of cheers the bulkhead was too thick for us to hear what was said but whatever it was affected the hunters strongly for the cheering was followed by loud exclamation and shouts of joy from the sounds on deck i knew that the sailors had been routed out and were preparing to lower the boats maud brewster accompanied me on deck but i left her at the break of the poop where she might watch the scene and not be in it the sailors must have learned whatever project was on hand and the vim and snap they put into their work attested their enthusiasm the hunters came trooping on deck with shotguns and ammunition boxes and most unusual their rifles the latter were rarely taken in the boats for a seal shot at long range with a rifle invariably sank before a boat could reach it but each hunter this day had his rifle and a large supply of cartridges i noticed they grinned with satisfaction whenever they looked at the macedonia's smoke which was rising higher and higher as she approached from the west the five boats went over the side with a rush spread out like the ribs of a fan and set a northerly course as on the preceding afternoon for us to follow i watched for some time curiously but there seemed nothing extraordinary about their behavior they lowered sails shot seals and hoisted sails again and continued on their way as i had always seen them do the macedonia repeated her performance of yesterday hogging the sea by dropping her line of boats in advance of ours and across our course fourteen boats require a considerable spread of ocean for comfortable hunting and when she had completely lapped our line she continued steaming into the northeast dropping more boats as she went what's up i asked wolf larsen unable longer to keep my curiosity in check never mind what's up he answered gruffly you won't be a thousand years in finding out and in the meantime just pray for plenty of wind ah oh, well i don't mind telling you he said in the next moment i'm going to give that brother of mine a taste of his own medicine in short i'm going to play the hog myself and not for one day but for the rest of the season if we're in luck and if we're not i queried not to be considered he laughed we simply must be in luck or it's all up with us he had the wheel at the time and i went forward to my hospital in the forecastle where lay the two crippled men nilsen and thomas mugridge nilsen was as cheerful as could be expected for his broken leg was knitting nicely but the cockney was desperately melancholy and i was aware of a great sympathy for the unfortunate creature and the marvel of it was that he still lived and clung to life the brutal years had reduced his meagre body to splintered wreckage and yet the spark of life within burned brightly as ever 
with an artificial foot and they make excellent ones you'll be stumping ship's galleys to the end of time i assured him jovially but his answer was serious nay solemn i don't know about what you say mr van wyden but i do know i'll never rest happy till i see that hellhound bloody well dead he can't live as long as me he's got no right to live and as the good word puts it he shall surely die and i say amen and damn soon at that when i returned on deck i found wolf larsen steering mainly with one hand while with the other he held the marine glasses and studied the situation of the boats paying particular attention to the position of the macedonia the only change noticeable in our boats was that they had hauled close on the wind and were heading several points west of north still i could not see the expediency of the maneuver for the free sea was still intercepted by the macedonia's five weather boats which in turn had hauled close on the wind thus they slowly diverged toward the west drawing farther away from the remainder of the boats in their line our boats were rowing as well as sailing even the hunters were pulling and with three pairs of oars in the water they rapidly overhauled what i may appropriately term the enemy the smoke of the macedonia had dwindled to a dim blot on the northeastern horizon of the steamer herself nothing was to be seen we had been loafing along till now our sails shaking half the time and spilling the wind and twice for short periods we had been hove to but there was no more loafing sheets were trimmed and wolf larsen proceeded to put the ghost through her paces we ran past our line of boats and bore down upon the first weather boat of the other line down that flying jib mr van waden wolf larsen commanded and stand by to back over the jibs i ran forward and had the downhaul of the flying jib all in and fast as we slipped by the boat a hundred feet to leeward the three men in it gazed at us suspiciously they had been hogging the sea and they knew wolf larsen by reputation at any rate i noted that the hunter a huge scandinavian sitting in the bow held his rifle ready to hand across his knees it should have been in its proper place in the rack when they came opposite our stern wolf larsen greeted them with a wave of the hand and cried come on board and have a gam to gam among the sealing schooners is a substitute for the verbs to visit to gossip it expresses the garrulity of the sea and is a pleasant break in the monotony of the life the ghost swung around into the wind and i finished my work forward in time to run aft and lend a hand with the main sheet you will please stay on deck miss brewster wolf larsen said as he started forward to meet his guest and you too mr van waden the boat had lowered its sail and run alongside the hunter golden bearded like a sea king came over the rail and dropped on deck but his hugeness could not overcome his apprehensiveness doubt and distrust showed strongly in his face it was a transparent face for all of its hairy shield 
and advertised instant relief when he glanced from wolf larsen to me noted that there was only the pair of us and then glanced over his own two men who had joined him surely he had little reason to be afraid he towered like a goliath above wolf larsen he must have measured six feet eight or nine inches in stature and i subsequently learned his weight two hundred forty pounds and there was no fat about him it was all bone and muscle a return of apprehension was apparent when at the top of the companionway wolf larsen invited him below but he reassured himself with a glance down at his host a big man himself but dwarfed by the propinquity of the giant so all hesitancy vanished and the pair descended into the cabin in the meantime his two men as was the wont of visiting sailors had gone forward into the forecastle to do some visiting themselves suddenly from the cabin came a great choking bellow followed by all the sounds of a furious struggle it was the leopard and the lion and the lion made all the noise wolf larsen was the leopard you see the sacredness of our hospitality i said bitterly to maud brewster she nodded her head that she heard and i noted in her face the signs of the same sickness at sight or sound of violent struggle from which i had suffered so severely during my first weeks on the ghost wouldn't it be better if you went forward set by the steerage companionway until it is over i suggested she shook her head and gazed at me pitifully she was not frightened but appalled rather at the human animality of it you will understand i took advantage of the opportunity to say whatever part i take in what is going on and what is to come i am compelled to take it if you and i are ever to get out of this scrape with our lives it is not nice for me i added i understand she said in a weak faraway voice and her eyes showed me that she did understand the sounds from below soon died away then wolf larsen came alone on deck there was a slight flush under his bronze but otherwise he bore no signs of the battle send those two men aft mr van waden he said i obeyed and a minute or two later they stood before him hoist in your boat he said to them your hunters decided to stay aboard a while and doesn't want it pounding alongside hoist in your boat i said he repeated this time in sharper tones as they hesitated to do his bidding who knows you may have to sail with me for a time he said quite softly with a silken threat that belied the softness as they moved slowly to comply and we might as well start with a friendly understanding lively now death narson makes you jump better than that and you know it their movements perceptibly quickened under his coaching and as the boat swung inboard i was sent forward to let go the jibs wolf larsen at the wheel directed the ghost after the macedonia's second weather boat under way and with nothing for the time being to do i turned my attention to the situation of the boats the macedonia's third weather boat was being attacked by two of ours the fourth by our remaining three and the fifth turn about was taking a hand in the defense of its nearest mate 
the fight had opened at long distance and their rifles were cracking steadily a quick snappy sea was being kicked up by the wind a condition which prevented fine shooting and now and again as we drew closer we could see the bullets zip-zipping from wave to wave the boat we were pursuing had squared away and was running before the wind to escape us and in the course of its flight to take part in repulsing our general boat attack attending to sheets and tacks now left me little time to see what was taking place but i happened to be on the poop when wolf larsen ordered the two strange sailors forward and into the forecastle they went sullenly but they went he next ordered miss brewster below and smiled at the instant horror that leapt into her eyes you'll find nothing gruesome down there he said only an unhurt man securely made fast to the ring bolts bullets are liable to come aboard and i don't want you killed you know even as he spoke a bullet was deflected by a brass-capped spoke of the wheel between his hands and screeched off through the air to windward you see he said to her and then to me mr van waden will you take the wheel Maud Brewster had stepped inside the companionway so that only her head was exposed. Wolf Larsen had procured a rifle and was throwing a cartridge into the barrel. I begged her with my eyes to go below, and she smiled and said, We may be feeble land creatures without legs, but we can show Captain Larsen that we are at least as brave as he. He gave a quick look of admiration. I like you a hundred percent better for that, he said books and brains and bravery you are well rounded a blue stocking fit to be the wife of a pirate chief <clears throat> we'll discuss that later he smiled as a bullet struck solidly into the cabin wall i saw his eyes flash golden as he spoke and i saw the terror mount in her own we are braver i hastened to say at least speaking for myself I know I am braver than Captain Larson. It was I who was now favored by a quick look. He was wondering if I were making fun of him. I put three or four spokes over to counteract a sheer toward the wind on the part of the ghost and steadied her. Wolf Larson was still waiting an explanation, and I pointed down to my knees. You will observe there, I said, a slight trembling. It is because I am afraid the flesh is afraid and i am afraid in my mind because i do not wish to die but my spirit masters the trembling flesh and the qualms of the mind i am more than brave i am courageous your flesh is not afraid you are not afraid on the one hand it costs you nothing to encounter danger on the other hand it even gives you delight you enjoy it you may be unafraid mr larsen but you must grant that bravery is mine you're right he acknowledged at once i never thought of it in that way before but is the opposite true if you were braver than i am i more cowardly than you we both laughed at the absurdity and he dropped down to the deck and rested his rifle across the rail the bullets we had received had traveled nearly a mile but by now we had cut that distance in half. He fired three careful shots. The first struck fifty feet to the windward of the boat, the second alongside, and the third 
the boat steerer let loose his steering oar and crumpled up in the bottom of the boat i guess that'll fix them wolf larsen said rising to his feet i couldn't afford to let the hunter have it and there's a chance the boat puller doesn't know how to steer in which case the hunter cannot steer and shoot at the same time his reasoning was justified for the boat rushed at once into the wind and the hunter sprang aft to take the boat steerer's place there was no more shooting though the rifles were still cracking merrily from the other boats the hunter had managed to get the boat before the wind again but we ran down upon it going at least two feet to its one a hundred yards away i saw the boat puller pass a rifle to the hunter wolf larsen went amidships and took the coil of the throat halyards from its pin then he peered over the rail with leveled rifle twice i saw the hunter let go the steering oar with one hand reach out for his rifle and hesitate we were now alongside and foaming past here you wolf larsen cried suddenly to the boat puller take a turn at the same time he flung the coil of rope it struck fairly nearly knocking the man over but he did not obey instead he looked to his hunter for orders the hunter in turn was in a quandary his rifle was between his knees but if he let go the steering oar in order to shoot the boat would sweep around and collide with the schooner also he saw wolf larsen's rifle bearing upon him and knew he would be shot ere he could get his rifle into play take a turn he said quietly to the man the boat puller obeyed taking a turn around the little forward thwart and paying the line as jerk taut the boat sheered out with a rush and the hunter steadied it to a parallel course some twenty feet from the side of the ghost now get that sail down and come alongside wolf larsen ordered he never let go his rifle even passing down the tackles with one hand when they were fast bow and stern and the two uninjured men prepared to come aboard the hunter picked up his rifle as if to place it in a secure position drop it wolf larsen cried and the hunter dropped it as though it were hot and had burned him once aboard the two prisoners hoisted in the boat and under wolf larsen's direction carried the wounded boat steerer down to the forecastle if our five boats do as well as you and i have done we'll have a pretty full crew wolf larsen said to me the man you shot he is i hope maud brewster quavered in the shoulder he answered nothing serious mr van waden will pull him around as good as ever in three or four weeks but he won't pull those chaps around from the look of it he added pointing at the macedonia's third boat for which i had been steering and which was now nearly abreast of us that's horner's and smoke's work i told them we wanted live men not carcasses but the joy of shooting to hit is a most compelling thing when once you've learned how to shoot ever experienced it mr van waden i shook my head and regarded their work it had indeed been bloody for they had drawn off and joined our other three boats in the attack on the remaining two of the enemy the deserted boat was in the trough of the sea rolling drunkenly across each comber its loose spritsail out at right angles to it and fluttering and flapping in the wind 
the hunter and boat-puller were both lying awkwardly in the bottom but the boat-steerer lay across the gunwale half in and half out his arms trailing in the water and his head rolling from side to side don't look miss brewster please don't look i had begged of her and i was glad that she had minded me and been spared the sight head right into the bunch mr van Waden, was wolf larsen's command as we drew nearer the firing ceased and we saw that the fight was over the remaining two boats had been captured by our five and the seven were grouped together waiting to be picked up look at that i cried involuntarily pointing to the northeast the blot of smoke which indicated the macedonia's position had reappeared yes i've been watching it was wolf larsen's calm reply he measured the distance away to the fog bank and for an instant paused to feel the weight of the wind on his cheek we'll make it i think but you can depend upon it that blessed brother of mine has twigged our little game and is just a humpin for us ah look at that the blot of smoke had suddenly grown larger and it was very black i'll beat you out though brother mine he chuckled i'll beat you out and i hope you know worse than that you rack your old engines into scrap when we hove to a hasty though orderly confusion reigned the boats came aboard from every side at once as fast as the prisoners came over the rail they were marshalled forward to the forecastle by our hunters while the sailors hoisted in the boats pell-mell dropping them anywhere upon the deck and not stopping to lash them we were already under way all sails set and drawing and the sheets being slacked off for a wind abeam as the last boat lifted clear of the water and swung in the tackles there was need for haste the macedonia belching the blackest of smoke from her funnel was charging down upon us from out of the northeast neglecting the boats that remained to her she had altered her course so as to anticipate ours she was not running straight for us but ahead of us our courses were converging like the sides of an angle the vertex of which was at the edge of the fog bank it was there or not at all that the macedonia could hope to catch us the hope for the ghost lay in that she should pass that point before the macedonia arrived at it wolf larsen was steering his eyes glistening and snapping as they dwelt upon and leaped from detail to detail of the chase now he studied the sea to windward for signs of the wind slackening or freshening now the macedonia and again his eyes roved over every sail and he gave commands to slack a sheet here a trifle to come in on one there a trifle till he was drawing out of the ghost the last bit of speed she possessed all feuds and grudges were forgotten and i was surprised at the alacrity with which the men who had so long endured his brutality sprang to execute his orders strange to say the unfortunate johnson came into my mind as we lifted and surged and heeled along and i was aware of a regret that he was not alive and present he had so loved the ghost and delighted in her sailing powers better get your rifles you fellows wolf larsen called to our hunters and the five men lined the lee rail guns in hand and waited the macedonia was now but a mile away 
the black smoke pouring from her funnel at a right angle so madly she raced pounding through the sea at a seventeen-knot gait sky hooting through the brine as wolf larsen quoted while gazing at her we were not making more than nine knots but the fog bank was very near a puff of smoke broke from the macedonia's deck we heard a heavy report and a round hole took form in the stretched canvas of our mainsail they were shooting at us with one of the small cannon which rumor had said they carried on board our men clustering amidships waved their hats and raised a derisive cheer again there was a puff of smoke and a loud report this time the cannonball striking not more than twenty feet astern and glancing twice from sea to sea to windward ere it sank but there was no rifle firing for the reason that all their hunters were out in the boats or our prisoners when the two vessels were half a mile apart a third shot made another hole in our mainsail then we entered the fog it was about us veiling and hiding us in its dense wet gauze the sudden transition was startling the moment before we had been leaping through the sunshine the clear sky above us the sea breaking and rolling wide to the horizon and a ship vomiting smoke and fire and iron missiles rushing madly upon us and at once as in an instant's leap the sun was blotted out there was no sky even our mastheads were lost to view and our horizon was such as tear-blinded eyes may see the gray mist drove by us like a rain every woolen filament of our garments every hair of our heads and faces was jeweled with a crystal globule the shrouds were wet with moisture it dripped from our rigging overhead and on the underside of our booms drops of water took shape in long swaying lines which were detached and flung to the deck in mimic showers at each surge of the schooner i was aware of a pent stifled feeling as the sounds of the ship thrusting herself through the waves were hurled back upon us by the fog so were one's thoughts the mind recoiled from contemplation of a world beyond this wet veil which wrapped us around this was the world the universe itself its bounds so near one felt impelled to reach out both arms and push them back it was impossible that the rest could be beyond these walls of grey the rest was a dream no more than the memory of a dream it was weird strangely weird i looked at maud brewster and knew that she was similarly affected then i looked at wolf larsen but there was nothing subjective about his state of consciousness his whole concern was with the immediate objective present he still held the wheel and i felt that he was timing time reckoning the passage of the minutes with each lunge forward and leeward roll of the ghost go forward and hard a lee without any noise he said to me in a low voice clew up the topsails first set men at all the sheets let there be no rattling of blocks no sounds of voices no noise understand no noise when all was ready the word hard a lee was passed forward to me from man to man and the ghost heeled about on the port tack with practically no noise at all 
and what little there was the slapping of a few reef points and the creaking of a sheaf in a block or two was ghostly under the hollow echoing pall in which we were swathed we had scarcely filled away it seemed when the fog thinned abruptly and we were again in the sunshine the wide-stretching sea breaking before us to the skyline but the ocean was bare no wrathful macedonia broke its surface or blackened the sky with her smoke wolf larsen at once squared away and ran down the rim of the fog bank his trick was obvious he had entered the fog to windward of the steamer and while the steamer had blindly driven on into the fog in the chance of catching him he had come about and out of his shelter and was now running down to re-enter to leeward successful in this the old simile of the needle in the haystack would be mild indeed compared with his brother's chance of finding him he did not run long jibbing the fore and mainsails and setting the topsails again we headed back into the bank as we entered i could have sworn i saw a vague bulk emerging to windward i looked quickly at wolf larsen already we were ourselves buried in the fog but he nodded his head he too had seen it the macedonia guessing his maneuver and failing by a moment in anticipating it there was no doubt that we had escaped unseen he can't keep this up wolf larsen said he'll have to go back for the rest of his boats send a man to the wheel mr van waden keep this course for the present and you might as well set the watches for we won't do any lingering tonight i'd give five hundred dollars though he added just to be aboard the macedonia for five minutes listening to my brother curse and now mr van waden he said to me when he had been relieved from the wheel we must make these newcomers welcome serve out plenty of whiskey to the hunters and see that a few bottles slip forward i'll wager every man jack of them is over the side tomorrow hunting for wolf larsen as contentedly as ever they hunted for death larsen but won't they escape as wainwright did i asked he laughed shrewdly <laughs> not as long as our old hunters have anything to say about it i'm dividing amongst them a dollar a skin for all the skins shot by our new hunters at least half of their enthusiasm today was due to that oh no there won't be any escaping if they have anything to say about it and now you better get forward to your hospital duties there must be a full ward waiting for you end of chapter twenty five Chapter Twenty Six of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Twenty Six. Wolf Larsen took the distribution of the whiskey off my hands, and the bottles began to make their appearance while I worked over the fresh batch of wounded men in the forecastle. I had seen whiskey drunk, such as whiskey and soda, by the men of the clubs, but never as these men drank it from pannikins and mugs and from the bottles great brimming drinks each one of which was in itself a debauch but they did not stop at one or two they drank and drank and ever the bottles slipped forward and they drank more everybody drank the wounded drank 
Woofty Woofty, who helped me, drank. Only Lewis refrained, no more than cautiously wetting his lips with the liquor, though he joined in the revels with an abandon equal to that of most of them. It was a Saturnalia. In loud voices they shouted over the day's fighting, wrangled about details, or waxed affectionate and made friends with the men whom they had fought. Prisoners and captors hiccuped on one another's shoulders and swore mighty oaths of respect and esteem. They wept over the miseries of the past and over the miseries yet to come under the iron rule of Wolf Larsen, and all cursed him and told terrible tales of his brutality. It was a strange and frightful spectacle. The small bunk-lined space, the floor and walls leaping and lurching, the dim light, the swaying shadows lengthening and foreshortening monstrously, the thick air heavy with smoke and the smell of bodies and iodoform, and the inflamed faces of the men, half-men, I should call them. I noted Ufti Ufti holding the end of a bandage and looking upon the scene, his velvety and luminous eyes glistening in the light like a deer's eyes and yet I knew the barbaric devil that lurked in his breast and belied all the softness and tenderness, almost womanly, of his face and form. And I noticed the boyish face of Harrison, a good face once, but now a demon's, convulsed with passion as he told the newcomers of the hell-ship they were in, and shrieked curses upon the head of Wolf Larsen. Wolf Larsen it was, always Wolf Larsen, enslaver and tormentor of men a male kirki and these his swine suffering brutes that groveled before him and revolted only in drunkenness and in secrecy and was i too one of his swine i thought and maud brewster no i ground my teeth in my anger and determination till the man i was attending winced under my hand and oofty oofty looked at me with curiosity i felt endowed with a sudden strength what of my new-found love i was a giant i feared nothing i would work my will through it all in spite of wolf larsen and of my own thirty-five bookish years all would be well i would make it well and so exalted upborne by a sense of power i turned my back on the howling inferno and climbed to the deck where the fog drifted ghostly through the night and the air was sweet and pure and quiet the steerage, where were the two wounded hunters, was a repetition of the forecastle, except that Wolf Larsen was not being cursed, and it was with a great relief that I again emerged on deck and went aft to the cabin. Supper was ready, and Wolf Larsen and Maud were waiting for me. While all his ship was getting drunk as fast as it could, he remained sober. Not a drop of liquor passed his lips. He did not dare it under the circumstances, for he had only Lewis and me to depend upon, and Lewis was even now at the wheel. We were sailing on through the fog without a lookout and without lights. That Wolf Larsen had turned the liquor loose upon his men surprised me, but he evidently knew their psychology and the best method of cementing in cordiality what had begun in bloodshed. His victory over Death Larsen seemed to have had a remarkable effect upon him. The previous evening he had reasoned himself into the blues, and I had been waiting momentarily for one of his characteristic outbursts. Yet nothing had occurred, and he was now in splendid trim. 
possibly his success in capturing so many hunters and boats had counteracted the customary reaction at any rate the blues were gone and the blue devils had not put in an appearance so i thought at the time but ah me little i knew him or knew that even then perhaps he was meditating an outbreak more terrible than any i had seen as i say he discovered himself in splendid trim when i entered the cabin he had had no headaches for weeks his eyes were clear blue as the sky his bronze was beautiful with perfect health life swelled through his veins in full and magnificent flood while waiting for me he had engaged maud in animated discussion temptation was the topic they had hit upon and from the few words i heard i made out that he was contending that temptation was temptation only when a man was seduced by it and fell for look you he was saying as i see it a man does things because of desire he has many desires he may desire to escape pain or to enjoy pleasure but whatever he does he does because he desires to do it but suppose he desires to do two opposite things neither of which will permit him to do the other maud interrupted the very thing i was coming to he said and between these two desires is just where the soul of the man is manifest she went on if it is a good soul it will desire and do the good action and the contrary if it is a bad soul it is the soul that decides bosh and nonsense he exclaimed impatiently it is the desire that decides here is a man who wants to say get drunk also he doesn't want to get drunk what does he do how does he do it he is a puppet he is a creature of his desires and of the two desires he obeys the strongest one that is all his soul hasn't anything to do with it how can he be tempted to get drunk and refuse to get drunk if the desire to remain sober prevails it is because it is the strongest desire temptation plays no part unless he paused while grasping the new thought which had come into his mind unless he is tempted to remain sober ha 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 he laughed what do you think of that mr van Weyden? that both of you are hair-splitting i said the man's soul is his desires or if you will the sum of his desires is his soul therein you are both wrong you lay the stress upon the desire apart from the soul miss brewster lays the stress on the soul apart from the desire and in point of fact soul and desire are the same thing however i continued miss brewster is right in contending that temptation is temptation whether the man yield or overcome fire is fanned by the wind until it leaps up fiercely so is desire like fire it is fanned as by a wind by sight of the thing desired or by a new and luring description or comprehension of the thing desired there lies the temptation it is the wind that fans the desire until it leaps up to master it that's temptation it may not fan sufficiently to make the desire overmastering but in so far as it fans at all that far it is temptation and as you say it may tempt for good as well as for evil i felt proud of myself as we sat down to the table my words had been decisive at least they had put an end to the discussion 
but wolf larsen seemed voluble prone to speech as i had never seen him before it was as though he were bursting with pent energy which must find an outlet somehow almost immediately he launched into a discussion on love as usual his was the sure materialistic side and maud's was the idealistic for myself beyond a word or so of suggestion or correction now and again i took no part he was brilliant but so was maud and for some time i lost the thread of the conversation through studying her face as she talked it was a face that rarely displayed color but tonight it was flushed and vivacious her wit was playing keenly and she was enjoying the tilt as much as wolf larsen and he was enjoying it hugely for some reason though i know not why in the argument so utterly had i lost it in the contemplation of one stray brown lock of maud's hair he quoted from isolt at tintagel where she says blessed am i beyond women even herein that beyond all born women is my sin and perfect my transgression as he had read pessimism into omar so now he read triumph stinging triumph and exultation into swyburne's lines and he read rightly and he read well he had hardly ceased reading when lewis put his head into the companionway and whispered down be easy will ya the fog's lifted and tis the port light of a steamer that's crossing our bow this blessed minute wolf larsen sprang on deck and so swiftly that by the time we followed he had pulled the steerage slide over the drunken clamor and was on his way forward to close the forecastle scuttle the fog though it remained had lifted high where it obscured the stars and made the night quite black directly ahead of us i could see a bright red light and a white light and i could hear the pulsing of a steamer's engines beyond a doubt it was the macedonia wolf larsen had returned to the poop and we stood in a silent group watching the lights rapidly cross our bow lucky for me he doesn't carry a searchlight wolf larsen said what if i should cry out loudly i queried in a whisper it would be all up he answered but have you thought upon what would immediately happen before i had time to express any desire to know he had me by the throat with his gorilla grip and by a faint quiver of the muscles a hint as it were he suggested to me the twists that would surely have broken my neck the next moment he had released me and we were gazing at the macedonia's lights what if i should cry out maud asked i like you too well to hurt you he said softly nay there was a tenderness and a caress in his voice that made me wince but don't do it just the same for i'd promptly break mr van waden's neck then she has my permission to cry out i said defiantly i hardly think you'll care to sacrifice the dean of american letters the second he sneered we spoke no more though we had become too used to one another for the silence to be awkward and when the red light and the white had disappeared we returned to the cabin to finish the interrupted supper again they fell to quoting and maud gave dowson's impenitentia ultima she rendered it beautifully but i watched not her but wolf larsen 
I was fascinated by the fascinated look he bent upon Maud. He was quite out of himself, and I noticed the unconscious movement of his lips, as he shaped word for word as fast as she uttered them. He interrupted her when she gave the lines, And her eyes should be my light, while the sun went out behind me, and the voils in her voice be the last sound in my ear. There are voils in your voice, he said bluntly, and his eyes flashed their golden light. I could have shouted with joy at her control. She finished the concluding stanza without faltering, and then slowly guided the conversation into less perilous channels. And all the while I sat in a half-daze, the drunken riot of the steerage breaking through the bulkhead, the man I feared and the woman I loved talking on and on. The table was not cleared. The man who had taken Mugridge's place had evidently joined his comrades in the forecastle. If ever Wolf Larsen attained the summit of living, he attained it then. From time to time I forsook my own thoughts to follow him, and I followed in a maze, mastered for the moment by his remarkable intellect, under the spell of his passion, for he was preaching the passion of revolt. It was inevitable that Milton's Lucifer should be instanced, and the keenness with which Wolf Larsen analyzed and depicted the character was a revelation of his stifled genius. It reminded me of Taine, yet I knew the man had never heard of that brilliant, though dangerous, thinker. He led a lost cause, and he was not afraid of God's thunderbolts, Wolf Larsen was saying. Hurled into hell, he was unbeaten. A third of God's angels he had led with him, and straightway he incited man to rebel against God, and gained for himself and hell the major portion of all the generations of man. Why was he beaten out of heaven? Because he was less brave than God? Less proud? Less aspiring? No, a thousand times no. God was more powerful, as he said, whom thunder hath made greater. But Lucifer was a free spirit. To serve was to suffocate. He preferred suffering and freedom to all the happiness of a comfortable servility. He did not care to serve God. He cared to serve nothing. He was no figurehead. He stood on his own legs. He was an individual. The first anarchist, Maud laughed rising and preparing to withdraw to her stateroom. "'Then it is good to be an anarchist!' he cried. He too had risen, and he stood facing her where she had paused at the door of her room as he went on. "'Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy. He will not drive us hence.' Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. It was the defiant cry of a mighty spirit. The cabin still rang with his voice as he stood there swaying, his bronze face shining, his head up and dominant, and his eyes, golden and masculine, intensely masculine and insistently soft, flashing upon Maud at the door. 
again that unnameable and unmistakable terror was in her eyes and she said almost in a whisper you are lucifer the door closed and she was gone he stood staring after her for a minute then returned to himself and to me i'll relieve lewis at the wheel he said shortly and call upon you to relieve at midnight better turn in now and get some sleep he pulled on a pair of mittens put on his cap and ascended the companion stairs while i followed his suggestion by going to bed for some unknown reason prompted mysteriously i did not undress but i lay down fully clothed for a time i listened to the clamor in the steerage and marveled upon the love which had come to me but my sleep on the ghost had become most healthful and natural, and soon the songs and cries died away, my eyes closed, and my consciousness sank down into the half-death of slumber. I knew not what had aroused me, but I found myself out of my bunk, on my feet, wide awake, my soul vibrating to the warning of danger as it might have thrilled to a trumpet call. I threw open the door. The cabin light was burning low. I saw Maud, my Maud, straining and struggling and crushed in the embrace of Wolf Larsen's arms. I could see the vain beat and flutter of her as she strove, pressing her face against his breast, to escape from him. All this I saw on the very instant of seeing, and as I sprang forward, I struck him with my fist on the face as he raised his head, but it was a puny blow. He roared in a ferocious, animal-like way, and gave me a shove with his hand. It was only a shove, a flirt of the wrist. Yet so tremendous was his strength that I was hurled backward as from a catapult. I struck the door of the stateroom which had formerly been Mugridge's, splintering and smashing the panels with the impact of my body. I struggled to my feet with difficulty dragging myself clear of the wrecked door, unaware of any hurt whatever. I was conscious only of an overmastering rage. I think I too cried aloud as I drew the knife at my hip and sprang forward a second time. But something had happened. They were reeling apart. I was close upon him, my knife uplifted but i withheld the blow i was puzzled by the strangeness of it maud was leaning against the wall one hand out for support but he was staggering his left hand pressed against his forehead and covering his eyes and with the right he was groping about him in a dazed sort of way it struck against the wall and his body seemed to express a muscular and physical relief at the contact as though he had found his bearings his location in space, as well as something against which to lean. Then I saw red again. All my wrongs and humiliations flashed upon me with a dazzling brightness. All that I had suffered and others had suffered at his hands. All the enormity of the man's very existence. I sprang upon him, blindly, insanely, and drove the knife into his shoulder. I knew then that it was no more than a flesh wound. I had felt the steel grate on his shoulder blade, and I raised the knife to strike at a more vital part. 
but Maud had seen my first blow, and she cried, Don't! Please don't! I dropped my arm for a moment, and a moment only. Again the knife was raised, and Wolf Larsen would have surely died had not she stepped between. Her arms were around me, her hair was brushing my face. My pulse rushed up in an unwanted manner, yet my rage mounted with it. She looked me bravely in the eyes. For my sake, she begged. I would kill him for your sake, I cried, trying to free my arm without hurting her. Hush, she said, and laid her fingers lightly on my lips. I could have kissed them, had I dared, even then in my rage. The touch of them was so sweet, so very sweet. Please, please, she pleaded, and she disarmed me by the words, as I was to discover they would ever disarm me. I stepped back, separating from her, and replaced the knife in its sheath. I looked at Wolf Larsen. He still pressed his left hand against his forehead. It covered his eyes. His head was bowed. He seemed to have grown limp. His body was sagging at the hips. His great shoulders were drooping and shrinking forward. Van Waden! He called hoarsely and with a note of fright in his voice. Oh, Van Waden, where are you? I looked at Maud. She did not speak, but nodded her head. Here I am, I answered, stepping to his side. What is the matter? Help me to a seat, he said in the same hoarse, frightened voice. I am a sick man, a very sick man, Hump, he said as he left my sustaining grip and sank into a chair. His head dropped forward on the table and was buried in his hands. From time to time it rocked back and forward as with pain. Once, when he half raised it, I saw the sweat standing in heavy drops on his forehead about the roots of his hair. I am a sick man, a very sick man, he repeated again, and yet once again. What is the matter? I asked, resting my hand on his shoulder. What can I do for you? But he shook my hand off with an irritated movement, and for a long time I stood by his side in silence. Maud was looking on, her face awed and frightened. What had happened to him, we could not imagine. Hump, he said at last, I must get into my bunk. Lend me a hand. I'll be all right in a little while. It's those damn headaches, I believe. I was afraid of them. I had a feeling... No, I don't know what I'm talking about. Help me into my bunk. But when I got him into his bunk, he again buried his face in his hands, covering his eyes, and as I turned to go, I could hear him murmuring, I am a sick man, a very sick man. Maud looked at me inquiringly as I emerged. I shook my head, saying, Something has happened to him. What? I don't know. He is helpless and frightened, I imagine, for the first time in his life. It must have occurred before he received the knife thrust, which made only a superficial wound. You must have seen what happened. She shook her head. I saw nothing. It is just as mysterious to me. He suddenly released me and staggered away. But what shall we do? What shall I do? 
If you will wait, please, until I come back, I answered. I went on deck. Lewis was at the wheel. You may go forward and turn in, I said, taking it from him. He was quick to obey, and I found myself alone on the deck of the ghost. As quietly as was possible, I clued up the topsails, lowered the flying jib and staysail, backed the jib over, and flattened the mainsail. Then I went below to Maud, placed my finger on my lips for silence, and entered Wolf Larsen's room. He was in the same position in which I had left him, and his head was rocking, almost writhing, from side to side. "'Anything I can do for you?' I asked. He made no reply at first, but on my repeating the question, he answered, "'No, no, I'm all right. Leave me alone till morning.' As I turned to go, I noted that his head had resumed its rocking motion. Maud was waiting patiently for me, and I took notice, with a thrill of joy, of the queenly poise of her head and her glorious, calm eyes. Calm and secure they were as her spirit itself. "'Will you trust yourself to me for a journey of six hundred miles or so?' I asked. "'You mean?' she asked, and I knew she had guessed aright. "'Yes, I mean just that,' I replied. There is nothing left for us but the open boat. For me, you mean, she said. You are certainly as safe here as you have been. No, there is nothing left for us but the open boat, I iterated stoutly. Will you please dress as warmly as you can at once and make into a bundle whatever you wish to bring with you? And make all haste, I added, as she turned toward her stateroom. The lazarette was directly beneath the cabin, and opening the trap-door in the floor and carrying a candle with me, I dropped down and began overhauling the ship's stores. I selected mainly from the canned goods, and by the time I was ready, willing hands were extended from above to receive what I passed up. We worked in silence. I helped myself also to blankets, mittens, oilskins, caps, and such things, from the slop-chest. It was no light adventure, this trusting ourselves in a small boat to so raw and stormy a sea, and it was imperative that we should guard ourselves against the cold and wet. We worked feverishly, carrying our plunder on deck and depositing it amidships, so feverishly that Maud, whose strength was hardly a positive quantity, had to give over, exhausted, and sit on the steps at the break of the poop. This did not serve to recover her, and she lay on her back on the hard deck, arms stretched out, and whole body relaxed. It was a trick I remembered of my sister, and I knew she would soon be herself again. I knew also that weapons would not come in amiss, and I re-entered Wolf Larsen's stateroom to get his rifle and shotgun. I spoke to him, but he made no answer, though his head was still rocking from side to side, and he was not asleep. "'Goodbye, Lucifer,' I whispered to myself as I softly closed the door. Next to obtain was a stock of ammunition. An easy matter, though I had to enter the steerage companionway to do it. Here the hunters stored the ammunition boxes they carried in the boats, and here, but a few feet from their noisy revels, I took possession of two boxes. Next to lower a boat. Not so simple a task for one man. Having cast off the lashings, I hoisted first on the forward tackle, then on the aft, till the boat cleared the rail, 
when I lowered away one tackle then the other for a couple of feet till it hung snugly above the water against the schooner's side. I made certain that it contained the proper equipment of oars, rowlocks, and sail. Water was a consideration, and I robbed every boat aboard of its breaker. As there were nine boats, all told, it meant that we should have plenty of water, and ballast as well, though there was the chance that the boat would be overloaded, what of the generous supply of other things I was taking. While Maud was passing me the provisions, and I was storing them in the boat, a sailor came on deck from the forecastle. He stood by the weather rail for a time, we were lowering over the lee rail, and then sauntered slowly amidships, where he again paused and stood facing the wind, with his back toward us. I could hear my heart beating as I crouched low in the boat. Maud had sunk down upon the deck and was, I knew, lying motionless, her body in the shadow of the bulwark. But the man never turned, and after stretching his arms above his head and yawning audibly, he retraced his steps to the forecastle scuttle and disappeared. A few minutes sufficed to finish the loading, and I lowered the boat into the water. As I helped Maud over the rail and felt her form close to mine, it was all I could do to keep from crying out, I love you! I love you! Truly, Humphrey Van Waden was at last in love, I thought, as her fingers clung to mine while I lowered her down into the boat. I held on to the rail with one hand and supported her weight with the other, and I was proud at the moment of the feat. It was a strength I had not possessed a few months before on the day I said good-bye to Charlie Furiseth and started for San Francisco and the ill-fated Martinez. As the boat ascended on a sea, her feet touched, and I released her hands. I cast off the tackles and leaped after her. I had never rowed in my life, but I put out the oars and, at the expense of much effort, got the boat clear of the ghost. Then I experimented with the sail. I had seen the boat-steerers and hunters set their sprit sails many times, yet this was my first attempt. What took them possibly two minutes took me twenty and in the end I succeeded in setting and trimming it, and, with the steering oar in my hands, hauled on the wind. "'There lies Japan,' I remarked, straight before us. "'Humphrey Van Waden,' she said, "'you are a brave man.' "'Nay,' I answered, "'it is you who are a brave woman.' We turned our heads, swayed by a common impulse to see the last of the ghost. Her low hull lifted and rolled to windward on a sea. Her canvas loomed darkly in the night. Her lashed wheel creaked as the rudder kicked. Then sight and sound of her faded away, and we were alone on the dark sea. End of chapter 26《Chapter Twenty Seven of the Sea Wolf》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Twenty Seven. Day broke, gray and chill. The boat was close-hauled on a fresh breeze, and the compass indicated that we were just making the course which would bring us to Japan. Though stoutly mittened, my fingers were cold. 
and they pained from the grip on the steering oar. My feet were stinging from the bite of the frost, and I hoped fervently that the sun would shine. Before me in the bottom of the boat lay Maud. She at least was warm, for under her and over her were thick blankets. The top one I had drawn over her face to shelter it from the night, so I could see nothing but the vague shape of her, and her light brown hair escaped from the covering and jeweled with moisture from the air. Long I looked at her, dwelling upon that one visible bit of her as only a man would who deemed it the most precious thing in the world. So insistent was my gaze that, at last, she stirred under the blankets. The top fold was thrown back, and she smiled out at me, her eyes yet heavy with sleep. "'Good morning, Mr. Van Waden,' she said. "'Have you sighted land yet?' "'No,' I answered. "'But we are approaching it at a rate of six miles an hour.' She made a moo of disappointment. "'But that is equivalent to 144 miles in 24 hours,' I added reassuringly. Her face brightened. "'And how far have we to go?' "'Siberia lies off there,' I said, pointing to the west. "'But to the southwest, some 600 miles is Japan. "'If this wind should hold, we'll make it in five days.' "'And if it storms? The boat could not live.' She had a way of looking one in the eyes and demanding the truth, and thus she looked at me as she asked this question. It would have to storm very hard, I temporized. And if it storms very hard? I nodded my head. But we may be picked up any moment by a sealing schooner. They are plentifully distributed over this part of the ocean. Why, you are chilled through, she cried. Look, you are shivering. Don't deny it, you are, and here I have been lying warm as toast. I don't see that it would help matters if you too sat up and were chilled, I laughed. It will, though, when I learn to steer, which I certainly shall. She sat up and began making her simple toilet. She shook down her hair, and it fell about her in a brown cloud, hiding her face and shoulders. Dear, damp brown hair. I wanted to kiss it, to ripple it through my fingers, to bury my face in it. I gazed entranced till the boat ran into the wind and the flapping sail warned me I was not attending to my duties. Idealist and romanticist that I was and always had been, in spite of my analytical nature, yet I had failed till now in grasping much of the physical characteristics of love. The love of man and woman I had always held was a sublimated something related to spirit, a spiritual bond that linked and drew their souls together. The bonds of the flesh had little part in my cosmos of love, but I was learning the sweet lesson for myself that the soul transmuted itself, expressed itself through the flesh, that the sight and sense and touch of the loved one's hair was as much breath and voice and essence of the spirit as the light that shone from the eyes and the thoughts that fell from the lips. After all, pure spirit was unknowable, a thing to be sensed and divined only, nor could it express itself in terms of itself. Jehovah was anthropomorphic because he could address himself to the Jews only in terms of their understanding. So he was conceived as in their own image, 
as a cloud a pillar of fire a tangible physical something which the mind of the israelites could grasp and so i gazed upon maud's light brown hair and loved it and learned more of love than all the poets and singers had taught me with all their songs and sonnets she flung it back with a sudden adroit movement and her face emerged smiling why don't women wear their hair down always i asked it's so much more beautiful if it didn't tangle so dreadfully she laughed there i've lost one of my precious hairpins i neglected the boat and had the sail spilling the wind again and again such was my delight in following her every movement as she searched through the blankets for the pin i was surprised and joyfully that she was so much the woman and the display of each trait and mannerism that was characteristically feminine gave me keener joy for i had been elevating her too highly in my concepts of her removing her too far from the plane of the human and too far from me i had been making of her a creature goddess-like and unapproachable so i hailed with delight the little traits that proclaimed her only woman after all such as the toss of the head which flung back the cloud of hair and the search for the pin she was woman my kind on my plane and the delightful intimacy of kind of man and woman was possible as well as the reverence and awe in which i knew i should always hold her she found the pin with an adorable little cry and i turned my attention more fully to the steering i proceeded to experiment lashing and wedging the steering oar until the boat held on fairly well by the wind without my assistance occasionally it came up too close or fell off too freely but it always recovered itself and in the end behaved satisfactorily and now we shall have breakfast i said but first you must be more warmly clad i got out a heavy shirt new from the slop chest and made from blanket goods i knew the kind so thick and so close of texture that it could resist the rain and not be soaked through after hours of wetting when she had slipped this on over her head i exchanged the boy's cap she wore for a man's cap large enough to cover her hair and when the flap was turned down to completely cover her neck and ears the effect was charming her face was of the sort that cannot but look well under all circumstances nothing could destroy its exquisite oval its well-nigh classic lines its delicately stenciled brows its large brown eyes clear-seeing and calm gloriously calm a puff slightly stronger than usual struck us just then the boat was caught as it obliquely crossed the crest of a wave it went over suddenly burying its gunwale level with the sea and shipping a bucketful or so of water i was opening a can of tongue at the moment and i sprang to the sheet and cast it off just in time the sail flapped and fluttered and the boat paid off a few minutes of regulating sufficed to put it on its course again when i returned to the preparation of breakfast it does very well it seems though i am not versed in things nautical she said nodding her head with grave approval at my steering contrivance but it will only serve when we are sailing by the wind i explained when running more freely with the wind astern abeam or on the quarter it will be necessary for me to steer 
i must say i don't understand your technicalities she said but i do your conclusion and i don't like it you cannot steer night and day and forever so i shall expect after breakfast to receive my first lesson and then you shall lie down and sleep we'll stand watches just as they do on ships i don't see how i am to teach you i made protest i am just learning for myself you little thought when you trusted yourself to me that i had no experience whatever with small boats this is the first time i have ever been in one then we'll learn together sir and since you've had a night's start you will teach me what you have learned and now breakfast my this air does give one an appetite no coffee i said regretfully passing her buttered tea biscuits and a slice of canned tongue there will be no tea no soups nothing hot till we have made land somewhere somehow after the simple breakfast capped with a cup of cold water maud took her lesson in steering in teaching her i learned quite a deal myself though i was applying the knowledge already acquired by sailing the ghost and by watching the boat steerers sail the small boats she was an apt pupil and soon learned to keep the course to luff in the puffs and to cast off the sheet in an emergency having grown tired apparently of the task she relinquished the oar to me i had folded up the blankets but now she proceeded to spread them out on the bottom when all was arranged snugly she said now sir to bed and you shall sleep until luncheon till dinner time she corrected remembering the arrangement on the ghost what could i do she insisted and said please please whereupon i turned the oar over to her and obeyed i experienced a positive sensuous delight as i crawled into the bed she had made with her hands the calm and control which were so much a part of her seemed to have been communicated to the blankets so that i was aware of a soft dreaminess and content and of an oval face and brown eyes framed in a fisherman's cap and tossing against a background now of grey cloud now of grey sea and then i was aware that i had been asleep i looked at my watch it was one o'clock i had slept seven hours and she had been steering seven hours when i took the steering oar i had first to unbend her cramped fingers her modicum of strength had been exhausted and she was unable even to move from her position i was compelled to let go the sheet while i helped her to the nest of blankets and chafed her hands and arms i am so tired she said with a quick intake of the breath and a sigh drooping her head wearily but she straightened it the next moment now don't scold don't you dare scold she cried with mock defiance i hope my face does not appear angry i answered seriously for i assure you i am not in the least angry N no she considered it looks only reproachful then it is an honest face for it looks what i feel you were not fair to yourself nor to me how can i ever trust you again she looked penitent i'll be good she said as a naughty child might say it i promise to obey as a sailor would obey his captain yes she answered it was stupid of me i know then you must promise something else i ventured readily 
that you will not say please please too often for when you do you are sure to override my authority she laughed with amused appreciation she too had noticed the power of the repeated please it is a good word i began but i must not overwork it she broke in but she laughed weakly and her head drooped again i left the oar long enough to tuck the blankets about her feet and to pull a single fold across her face alas she was not strong i looked with misgiving toward the southwest and thought of the six hundred miles of hardship before us ay if it were no worse than hardship on this sea a storm might blow up at any moment and destroy us and yet i was unafraid i was without confidence in the future extremely doubtful and yet i felt no underlying fear it must come right it must come right i repeated to myself over and over again the wind freshened in the afternoon raising a stiffer sea and trying the boat and me severely but the supply of food and the nine breakers of water enabled the boat to stand up to the sea and wind and i held on as long as i dared then i removed the sprit tightly hauling down the peak of the sail and we raced along under what sailors call a leg of mutton late in the afternoon i sighted a steamer smoke on the horizon to leeward and i knew it either for a russian cruiser or more likely the macedonia still seeking the ghost the sun had not shone all day and it had been bitter cold as night drew on the clouds darkened and the wind freshened so that when maud and i ate supper it was with our mittens on and with me still steering and eating morsels between puffs by the time it was dark wind and sea had become too strong for the boat and i reluctantly took in the sail and set about making a drag or sea anchor i had learned of the device from the talk of the hunters and it was a simple thing to manufacture furling the sail and lashing it securely about the mast boom sprit and two pairs of spare oars i threw it overboard a line connected it with the bow and as it floated low in the water practically unexposed to the wind it drifted less rapidly than the boat in consequence it held the boat bow on to the sea and wind the safest position in which to escape being swamped when the sea is breaking into whitecaps and now maud asked cheerfully when the task was accomplished and i pulled on my mittens and now we are no longer traveling toward japan i answered our drift is to the southeast or south-southeast at the rate of at least two miles an hour that will be only twenty-four miles she urged if the wind remains high all night yes and only one hundred and forty miles if it continues for three days and nights but it won't continue she said with easy confidence it will turn around and blow fair the sea is the great faithless one but the wind she retorted i have heard you grow eloquent over the brave trade wind wish i had thought to bring wolf larsen's chronometer and sextant i said still gloomily sailing one direction drifting another direction 
to say nothing of the set of the current in some third direction makes a resultant which dead reckoning can never calculate before long we won't know where we are by five hundred miles then i begged her pardon and promised i should not be disheartened any more at her solicitation i let her take the watch till midnight it was then nine o'clock but i wrapped her in blankets and put an oilskin about her before i lay down i slept only catnaps the boat was leaping and pounding as it fell over the crests I could hear the seas rushing past, and spray was continually being thrown aboard. And still, it was not a bad night, I mused. Nothing to the nights I had been through on the ghost. Nothing, perhaps, to the nights we should go through in this cockle shell. Its planking was three-quarters of an inch thick. Between us and the bottom of the sea was less than an inch of wood. And yet, I aver it and I aver it again, I was unafraid. The death which Wolf Larsen and even Thomas Mugridge had made me fear, I no longer feared. The coming of Maud Brewster into my life seemed to have transformed me. After all, I thought, it is better and finer to love than to be loved, if it makes something in life so worthwhile that one is not loath to die for it. I forget my own life in the love of another life, and yet, such is the paradox, I never wanted so much to live as right now when I placed the least value upon my own life. I never had so much reason for living, was my concluding thought, and after that, until I dozed, I contented myself with trying to pierce the darkness to where I knew Maud crouched low in the stern sheets watching of the foaming sea and ready to call me on an instant's notice end of chapter twenty seven everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.